This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month, members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Raphael Hogarth, and today I'm joined by Judy Stone. She's going to tell me about Boydell and NZP, a recent Court of Appeal judgment about restrictive covenants. So we said on our podcast about Plannan and Gilligan that it was a real treat to have a rare Court of Appeal judgment on the enforcement of restrictive covenants. We've now got a real embarrassment of riches because we've got another one, Boydell and NZP, which we're talking about today. Uh, Why is this an important case, Judy? Well, it depends a little bit um, what you're interested in, because there's something here for everyone, really, who's interested at least in restrictive covenants. There's some issues of construction. There's what we like to call the revival of the milkman, which is a consideration of a case that says whether or not you can take into account outlandish circumstances. And there's some also well, what might seem dry, but quite important procedural points about things like the adequacy of damages. So, less dry, could you tell our listeners a bit about the facts of the case? Well, yes, less dry. We're in the bile acid industry, which is a business made for podcasts rather than television, if ever there was one. And in particular, NZP's bile acid business is divided into two parts. The first is ursodeoxycholic acid, and the second is everything else. So, Dr. Boydell was employed as the head of the everything else part, specialty products. And he wanted to go off and work for a competitor, a key competitor of NZP's called Explorer. And I'm guessing NZP wasn't very happy about that. No, they were less than thrilled. And as a result, they decided to try and enforce restrictions in his contracts, preventing him from competing, soliciting or dealing with their clients. So we should say at the outset that we were both involved in this case on behalf of uh, NZP. Our colleague Rupert Paynes was also acting on behalf of NZP and our colleague Andrew Edge was acting on behalf of Dr Boydell. Rupert and Andrew unfortunately couldn't be with us today. In the early days of this case, Judy, there was some correspondence between the parties in the normal way and everybody ended up in court for an interim injunction hearing around the end of February. What was the journey then to the Court of Appeal? The journey from there to the Court of Appeal was a very hectic one, I think, for everybody who was involved. One of the things that's going on at the moment is the Court of Appeal seems to have a little bit of of time on its hands, so things are being heard extremely quickly. So within really um, less than three weeks after the judgment in the in the High Court, we're already in the Court of Appeal having exchanged skeleton arguments and ready to go. So the main issue in the Court of Appeal was about the non-compete clause in Dr Boydell's contract. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That was definitely the focus. But I also think it's important not to forget that there was also a non-solicit and a non-deal clause that were relevant too. And it's, it's worth remembering in, in all these cases that quite often... A client's, a company's interests can be very well served by the non-solicit and non-deal and not the much more exciting, sometimes non-compete. And it's worth making sure that they're not treated just as a a tack-on when we're preparing injunctions because they can often do quite powerful work and they can be much, much easier to justify. So thinking about the non-compete, first of all, what were the main issues before the Court of Appeal in relation to that clause? Like every case in this field, the issues were, what does this clause mean? Does it go too far, as in does it go beyond that which is reasonably necessary to protect um, the legitimate interests of the business? And three, if it does, can you prune it 
so that it doesn't anymore. These issues were being looked at by both the High Court and then the Court of Appeal on an interim basis, not not at full trial. How does that affect how the court approaches those issues? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important issue. And it affects each of them in, in slightly different ways. So at interim stage, how does the court go about deciding what the clause means? Well, the court has to look at construction in the context of what the parties knew at the time. At the interim stage, the court obviously won't have a full picture of everything that the parties might say about that. So the Court of Appeal said that unless it is the case that there are disputes of fact that might affect things down the road, the court should not put off questions of construction until trial. So if the court can work out what the clause means at the interim stage, it should go on to do so. And there was an issue before the Court of Appeal, wasn't there, about what this clause did mean? Yes, there was a question that quite often arises in these kinds of cases about whether the clause would stop someone from doing anything that competes, as in any activity that competes, or it would prevent him from doing any activity at all for someone or something that does itself compete. And what did the Court of Appeal decide about that? The Court of Appeal decided that the clause prevented him from doing anything at all for a competing entity, and it didn't just restrict him from doing anything that itself competes. So one of the reasons that Dr Boydell argued that the clause was too wide was that it would restrict him from working not just for competitors of his old employer, but it would also restrict him from working for competitors of any entity within his employer's group of companies. What did the Court of Appeal say about that? Well, this is the first time that the milkman crops up. So it's a, it's a really old case of Skelton that says that where a clause on its face might look like it would cover activities which are so fantastically outside of the understanding or intention of the parties that no one would conceive that the employee would ever do that thing, then that would not prevent a clause from being enforceable. So the Skilton case, like this one, dealt with cow products. Quite different cow products. Yeah, somewhat more palatable, I would have thought, for for most tastes. And it was about whether you could stop a milkman from doing something that was outside the contemplation of the parties. So in this case here, the way the Court of Appeal looked at it was that on its face, it might look like the clause would prevent Dr Boydell from, say, working for Boots. Not as part of their anything to do with bile acid, just in in a nasal spray bit of the business. Exactly. Anything at all for Boots, because at least on his case, arguably that was in competition with the group companies, some of the things that Boots did, and therefore he couldn't even perhaps work on the shop floor because that would, looking at the term very carefully, be an activity for a business which at least in part competes. But the Court of Appeal said that's fanciful, it can't have been what the parties were getting at. Yes, absolutely. Some of the facts in this case could be even more graphic than that. The questions of whether he could work in a slaughterhouse, for example. Again, facts for podcasts and not for television. So, and I think it's worth just explaining that the point here really is that if something is so fantastical that it's outside the contemplation of the parties, then it shouldn't make any difference to whether or not the clauses are enforceable because it's not going to affect the parties in the real world anyway. But in any event, the judge ended up severing the part of the non-compete that related to group companies and the Court of Appeal 
upheld that decision to set. Well, to some extent, yes. The Court of Appeal held that there was a serious issue to be tried, but they wouldn't mess with the order as made by the judge. One of the other reasons that Dr Boydell said that this clause was too wide was uh, the point that we discussed a moment ago, that it would, he said, and the Court of Appeal agreed with him, restrain him from doing any activity for a competing business and not just competitive activity for a competing business. Why wasn't the Court of Appeal persuaded by that argument? Well, each and every one of these cases turns on its own facts. And I think as as barristers, we're all quite keen to include lots of references to previous authorities and to explain why in this other case decided a few years ago it was or wasn't enforceable, depending on what we're trying to put forward. But I think this is a really good reminder that former authorities in this area, of course, they are relevant and they can be referred to, but they won't determine the outcome in any given case. Because what the court does, as upheld by the Court of Appeal in the NZP case, was to look very carefully at the facts of this individual case to see what could be supported. And I think this is a real shout out as well to all of us who spent nights, including very junior people quite often, getting the evidence right, often under time pressure, to enable our clients to go to court on these sorts of injunctions that it is that work that is important because the court's going to look at the real details to work out whether there's a serious issue to be tried. And it's not just about whether your barrister down the road can whip out a a Bible of relevant authorities and say, well, look, because this case in 1993 said X, therefore we win, game over. So what was it that made the facts of this case different from those previous authorities in which the courts have said clauses that purport to restrict any activity for a competing business and not just competitive activity for a competing business were too wide. So the difference in this case than in some of the other cases was that NZP, as a highly specialised niche business, and Dr Boydell had a lot of access to its confidential information across the board. And just to put a bit of colour on that, one of Dr Boydell's early arguments was that he worked for the non-UDCA part of the business, the non-urso-deoxycholic acid part of the business. Um, And as such, he should not be prevented in future from working on UDCA. But what the evidence was about, a lot of it, was about how he had access to information across the board, given the seniority of his position. There was no way in which his knowledge of those parts of the business could be insulated going forwards so that there was really nothing, at least arguably, on the serious issue to be tried basis that he could do that wouldn't potentially involve the use of his former employer's confidential information. So the idea is even if he were to work in a non-competitive part of a competitive business, his knowledge might still be useful and might still end up in the hands of people performing competitive activity who might find it useful. Yes, absolutely. You couldn't put in some sort of a separating wall uh, between him. And also he was just so senior. He's the sort of person who'd be involved at the planning business, the strategic elements of the business. So when you look at the actual reality, which after all is is what we're really talking about in these cases, it just wasn't realistic to think that it would be appropriate for him to do anything at all. We've talked a bit about the Skilton principle, and that was also relevant to how the Court of Appeal dealt with the non-solicitation and non-dealing clauses in this case. What did the Court of Appeal say about those? So you asked me about non-solicit and non-dealing clauses, and I suspect a lot of our listeners will know exactly what they are, but just might be worth just clarifying. Non-solicit is generally a clause that stops 
someone from contacting um, or seeking business from a client. And a non-dealing clause is something that prevents a former employee from dealing with them at all. To take the non-solicit first, one of the things that Dr. Boydell tried to argue was that the clause was unusual because what it stopped him from doing was soliciting clients to reduce their business with NZP. Rather than taking their business to his new employer. Yeah, exactly. And the judge and the Court of Appeal both gave that argument short shrift. NZP had every interest in preventing someone from taking their business, so that didn't really go anywhere. The, the second point was, like you said, the, the Skelton point. So what Dr Boydell has also tried to argue was that it would prevent him from doing things that had nothing to do with the sort of work that he had been doing. And this is where Skelton came back in. So that's the point that things that are fanciful can effectively be ignored. And so both the judge and the Court of Appeal found that those things were just fanciful. And what about the non-deal? Uh, pretty much the same thing, to be honest. Anything that went too far on that clause was fanciful. And so both of them were upheld. So when it comes to seeking these interim injunctions, we lawyers often get very worried about whether we're getting our letters in quickly enough, turning around client instructions quickly enough. Uh, and in this case, the defendants did say that interim relief should be refused because of the claimant's delay. Why wasn't the Court of Appeal persuaded by that? There are two main points here. The first, and all credit should go to the parties for this, was that the court, as upheld by the Court of Appeal, found that they had behaved in an exemplary and responsible fashion. Their correspondence had been civilised and businesslike, and the court drew attention to that. I think it's a reminder to everyone that it's usually better to be polite and businesslike rather than to fire off aggressive correspondence. And that correspondence was partly aimed at settling the dispute out of court so it never had to come to court in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things I think that both the judge and the Court of Appeal was impressed by, that the parties had been sensibly engaged in without prejudice communications. And then the second point was that Dr Boydell hadn't started his new job yet. And so what that meant was that the hearing was held at a time when the cat wasn't yet out the bag, unlike in, I think, the, one of the other cases considered by a previous podcast of, of Plannon, where by the time you got to the hearing, he'd already started in his new job. And in fact, he was still being paid by his old employer, wasn't he? Yes. At the time of the application, he was still on garden leave. And indeed, given the way in which these particular clauses were drafted, he was going to be paid by his former employer, by NZP, throughout the time of the restraints as well. That was also relevant, wasn't it, to this issue of the adequacy of damages? Because we've got to remember that the court is looking at this at the interim stage, not after a full trial. So how does that play into whether the court grants an injunction or not? Yeah, absolutely. So at the interim stage, what the court's trying to do is the best it can in an imperfect set of facts. So it doesn't know ultimately what's going to happen. So what the question of adequacy of damages is about is about seeing whether if the court makes effectively the wrong decision to that party's, that party could just get some money down the road to sort out any harm that they might suffer. And it's worth looking at it a bit differently for each party. So if you've got the employer who's trying to enforce the covenant, if damages would be adequate for them, an injunction won't be granted because damages claimed down the road would give them everything they need and that would be the end of it. Conversely, if damages would be adequate for the defendant, for the employee, 
then an injunction will be granted, assuming that there's a serious issue to be tried, because that employee could just be paid some money at the end. So in this case, damages would have been an adequate remedy for the employee. Why was that? So in this case, Dr. Boydell would be paid his salary at the time. It wasn't just that he might be able to recover it later in circumstances where, for example, while during the period he wasn't paid, he might face mortgage payments or bills or just generally have to live his life. And also there was no question here that his skills might atrophy or, or anything like that. So what are the implications of that for how the court decides whether to grant an injunction or not? Well, what that means is that there are some issues that at least arguably won't arise at all for consideration. Now, there is some doubt as to whether particular issues are in the balance of convenience bucket. That's the bucket that doesn't arise if damages are an adequate remedy for either party. Yes, exactly that. And so you might not even get onto these issues if, like in this case, damages are adequate for a party. And the main ones that are relevant here is one delay. So question, open question, because it's not yet been determined. Is this a freestanding point? Or is this one of the things that goes into mix at the balance of convenience? Secondly, the higher scrutiny of the merits that is sometimes carried out in cases where you're not going to be able to get even a speedy trial on early during the period of the relevant restraint. And the case law indicates that that higher level of scrutiny is only one of the things that takes place at the balance of convenience stage. So what it doesn't do is increase the initial burden of the serious issue to be tried. So in a case like this, where damages are adequate, there would be no higher scrutiny, even if you couldn't get that case on. So for lawyers preparing these cases for interim hearings in the future, what are the take-home practical points from this Court of Appeal judgment? Well, if I may, I'd like to go back even further than when you're preparing for the case, because it really starts with the drafting of the restrictions themselves. Of course. Yeah, because if you've got ones that work and that go no further than necessary, it won't be necessary to do much fancy footwork when it comes to court. So, so should we start there? So you need to think really carefully at that point about exactly which commercial interests you're protecting and how. Yeah, absolutely. Because if your client can't explain to you why they need a particular clause to protect their business when you're advising them. Well, then you're not going to be able to explain that to the High Court. No, absolutely not. And you're certainly not going to be able to get a better explanation under the precious of time when you've got an interim hearing on Friday. So that's, that's our first point, I think. And what about once the dispute has arisen, once an employee has said, I'm planning to go elsewhere? Well, it's all about measured correspondence, isn't it? Business-like, exemplary, polite. Yeah, exactly that. So make sure that the correspondence is polite. Make sure that it's supported by the relevant facts and doesn't go too far because that's going to put you in the best position when it comes before the court. And I suppose as well as thinking about the facts very carefully, when you're drafting the covenants in the first place, you need to be prepared to argue the facts uh, when it does come before the court and, and not just rely on the way that similar covenants were treated in previous authorities, as we were discussing before. Yeah, absolutely that. You can't skimp on the factual analysis. And if it doesn't go your way in the High Court? Why not have a crack at putting in an appeal? I think parties are quite often deterred from seeking permission to appeal because they don't think that they're going to manage to get them on quickly enough in this 
fast-moving area and by the time you get there maybe the covenants would have expired or, or run much more of their course but the Court of Appeals hearing things really quickly so why not have a go? And I guess that means parties need to be prepared to move just as quickly as the Court of Appeal can. Yes and it can be pretty uncomfortable at times but yes absolutely you may be on in the Court of Appeal within days. That was Judy Stone talking to me Raphael Hogarth about Boydell and NZP. The podcast is produced by our own Hannah Slarks. You can find the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com. 